The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. As Andy said, uh, in the pew back in front of you, page 674. And if you brought a copy of the Bible, you have it on maybe an electronic device, I'd urge you to look along with me. Um, as I preach through Ephesians, I think it's vital for you to see the things that I'm saying right there on the page, right there in the text. And that you will understand uh, in a lasting way how for the rest of your lives you can go to Ephesians 1 and read over these words and find out, dear Christian brother and sister, just how rich you are in Christ. Now, this is a big issue in our world. I think as we look, uh, we think about the country of Nepal, one of the poorest in the world. And I've been to some very poor places and I've seen some amazing poverty in my life. I would say some of the poorest people I've ever seen are in Haiti and Port-au-Prince and the City Soleil there, the tent city. They, they just seem to have almost nothing. And I've seen some incredibly wealthy places in my life too. Anybody that's been to Biltmore knows what I'm talking about. Uh, I think they have a golden bathtub there or something like that. And the, the gap between the two is something that I've seen with my own eyes and I've experienced. But I think what we really don't have a fair sense of is how infinitely wealthier are the inhabitants of heaven compared to anybody here on earth. How incredibly blessed they are and how rich is Almighty God and how Jesus, who is infinitely rich, saw how infinitely poor we all were apart from His grace and descended from heaven to earth and became unspeakably poor himself, that we might become immeasurably rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I don't know what version that is. Probably isn't any version at all. But that's what the, t- the truth is, that God saw our poverty and sent Jesus to make us rich. Now, how rich? Well, I don't think we have any full sense of our wealth in Christ. But I think Ephesians 1 may be a great place to go. A number of years ago, um, my family and I went to Williamsburg, and we were talking, I was talking to one of the people there about, you know, they've, they've built up that place in the pattern of colonial Williamsburg, and for me, as a, somebody interested in history, I want to know how they know what to put in the houses, especially the wealthier houses, like the governor's mansion and some of these other wealthy um, merchant, merchants, etc., and they said, well, they, they had inventory lists of what these wealthy people had. And they were very meticulous. And they, they would go line by line and they'd describe the silverware, the flatware, the, you know, the porcelain, different things that they had. And they would give verbal descriptions of them. And from those inventory lists of wealth, they're able to kind of reenact those houses. And you're able to see what they think that it looked like. Well, I think that Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 is like an inventory list of our wealth in Christ. And we are really wealthy. So we're going to have the privilege today of going through this kind of line by line. We began to do it a little bit last week. And try to sense our immeasurable wealth or richness in Christ. It begins in verse 3. And just by quick way of review. uh, In verse 3 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So... I begin here where I, I kind of ended last week. Our blessings that are listed here in Ephesians 1 
are spiritual blessings and they are kept for us in the heavenly realms. And this is directly against the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth teaching. I am not in any way saying that God doesn't bless us materially and that God doesn't give us things to enjoy. He does. But that's not what this is talking about. The wealth that's listed here is spiritual and it's in the heavenly realms and we have it. And God is to be praised. He is to be worshipped because of this wealth. We should give him all praise and glory and thank him that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has been given us in Christ Jesus. Now last week we began and we focused on the first of the blessings listed there which is election, sovereign election. We talked about this last week, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And we talked about that last week. I'm not going to say anything more about it. God's sovereign election is the first of the blessings, the spiritual blessings that he lists. Now, all of these blessings have come to us, and we mentioned this last week and again the week before, and we can't say it enough, but the source of our riches is God's delighted grace. God is happy. He is delighted to show us grace. And that is the source of every blessing that we have. Now, Gifts grudgingly given are no gifts at all. Isn't that true? I mean, do you want to receive a gift that's grudgingly given to you? I think that would be more of a burden than a blessing. I think it actually hurts the relationship. Everyone has encountered the stingy giver. Now, I'm not saying everyone has been the stingy giver from time to time. Maybe that's true. But I think we've encountered uh, this person. Think about what it says in Proverbs 23, 6 through 8. It says, do not eat the food of a stingy man. And do not crave his delicacies, for he is the kind of man who's always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And you will vomit up the little you have eaten, and you will have wasted all your compliments. So there's sitting at the table of a wealthy but stingy man who the whole time is thinking how much the meal is costing him. I mean, how much that bite you're putting in your mouth right now is costing him. And he's irritated, and he's a bit grudging, and he's like, oh, you... You wanted seconds? You know, something like that. Well, listen, God isn't like that. Nothing at all like that. God loves to be generous to us. He delights in it, actually. I love what it says in Luke 12, 32. Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What is that saying but that God really enjoys making us infinitely wealthy? I mean, he really enjoys it. It's, it's a delight to him. Now, the cost of these blessings that we're talking about here, these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm, is, is immeasurable. Every one of them is blood-bought. Now, we're going to talk about redemption by his blood in, in good time, but I just want to go ahead to verse 7 and, and just have you look at it. In him we have redemption through his blood. So I would just extend the phrase, through his blood, to all of the blessings. All of them are blood-bought. All of them. Expensive. But God was delighted, in an infinitely mysterious way, delighted to pour out the blood of his Son to make you and I infinitely spiritually wealthy. Now we know in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says God loves a cheerful giver. And that's a challenging verse. Very brief, easy to memorize. But it's hard to live out, isn't it? That we should be cheerful in all of our giving. That we should take delight in the persons that we're blessing and find joy in their joy. And say, I really want you to be happy. My happiness is bound up with you right now. I am happy to give to you. God loves a cheerful giver. Well, let me tell you something. Even better than that, God is a cheerful giver. 
Amen? He really delights in giving to his children. Even better, we think about this, that God doesn't give, as that text says, reluctantly or under compulsion. Meditate on that. God isn't a reluctant giver of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. He is delighted to give them. And I can tell you right now, he is under no compulsion to give them. He is not forced or compelled in any way. He didn't have to do anything for us. We were rebels. We were sinners. We had violated all of his laws. He didn't owe us anything. So he's not under any compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion has God given us. He's done it freely. And so many verses in this section highlight the freeness of these gifts. How generous God is in all of this. How lavish. How happy he is to give. How much he is pleased to do this. So in verse 4, it talks about his love, unconditional love. In love, verse 4, right on into verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his son. So the words in love are a little bit challenging to know where to position. Some translations position them uh, with what went before, and some position it with what comes immediately after. So in the KJV, it's something like this. Uh, Verse 4 would read like this. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So that's where it kind of cuts it and says that God elected us to be these things. Holy, blameless, and filled with love. So there it would be that we would be characterized by love and we'll spend eternity filled with love. And all of that's true. All of that's true. But... uh, Another way to cut it is to say it it links up with predestination. And it's really describing God's attitude. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And that's where I'm going to go. That's what the ESV and the NIV and many of the translations link it with God's disposition toward us in predestination. Either way, you can't lose. We, d- we will be filled with love in heaven because he first loved us. We're going to be filled with love. We're going to be sim- swimming in a sea of love. And we'll be perfectly characterized by love. Heaven is a world of love, quoting Jonathan Edwards. We are going to be characterized by love. But I think this use of the word love goes to the Father. The Father set his love on us here. He set his love on us. And he loved us from before the foundation of the world. God's heart is drawn out after his elect, after his children. As I quoted last week, I love this verse, Jeremiah 31, 3. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Or really an eternal love, a timeless love. I've loved you with a, uh, with a, time, with a love that, that soars above history. Before, during, and after history, my love for you. God's love is immeasurable. It's a source of all of these blessings. God has made us incredibly rich because he loves us. And that love will never be taken from us. It does not matter what your circumstances are that you're going through right now. If you're a child of God, God's love is set on you and will never be removed from you. Romans chapter 8 makes this very plain at the end of that chapter, glorious chapter. Verses 38 and 39, it says, Paul says, For I'm convinced... That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing's going to separate us from that love. Now you may be going through a really grinding trial right now, a, a terrible affliction. 
And Satan is whispering in your ear saying, this is proof, it's evidence, God doesn't love you. But nothing could be further from the truth. Romans 8 makes that plain. Now, the delight that God has in us, you must know, is unconditional. It wasn't triggered or sparked by anything in you. There wasn't a a nature or an attribute of yourself that sucked or drew God's love out from his heart. That, that, that drew it out. It, it's not like that at all. This is the beauty of unconditional love. It's coming from his sovereign, settled, determined character, his grace. That's why he loves you, because he loves you. Like it says, like God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than all other peoples, for you are actually the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. In other words, boiling it all down, the Lord loved you because he loved you. Like, well, I don't know if that gets me anywhere. Friends, it gets you everywhere. That gets you to heaven. (laughs) He loved you because he loved you. It's from inside him. It's a sovereign, unconditional love. And actually, the greatest display of it ever was in the cross of Christ. Amen? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's a clear display. There's nothing in you that drew his love out. It was just something he did. We also notice this language. And I'm just going through the section here showing how much pleasure God has in giving. And how much delight he has. And how much he enjoys it. That's what I'm tracing out here. But look also at the language of pleasure and will in verse 5. It says, in accordance with his pleasure and will. God's delight and his pleasure in making us rich in Christ is centrally on display here. It brings him so much pleasure to predestine us and adopt us. This is his will and he's pleased to do it. It also speaks in verse 6 of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given uh, us in the one he loves. So in Christ he just lavishes, overflows goodness on us. This is just the nature of grace. It's his riches and his his lavish goodness to people who deserved to be condemned. So the lavishness of his grace. And and, and verse 7 speaks of the riches of God's grace. And verse 8 as well. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Similar words. There's a sense of riches. God doesn't give us out of his wealth. He gives us according to his wealth. Do you understand the difference? He gives us proportionally to what he can afford. And, and what is that? Oh, you can't measure it. It's infinite. He is the owner of everything in the universe. And so God gives us according to his wealth. It's the lavish nature here. And then it speaks in verse 9, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. A, a sense of, of God's delight. God, how much, how much God enjoys giving us the kingdom. I want you to picture with me uh, right now just an image of a, of a cheerful giver. So there's so many different pictures I could have, but in my mind's eye, I don't know why, I picture a a little girl who's knitting a scarf for her daddy. Not that that's ever happened in my family. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. But anyway, just picture a little girl who's knitting a scarf for her daddy. And the, the time has come, her mommy's helped her, and the scarf is finished now, and it's time to give it. And so she's rolling the thing up and tying it with a string so it won't come unrolled, and she's wrapping it. And what, she's humming to herself, and she's happy. And she's excited, and she just can't wait to see the look on his face. Of course, the pressure's on him to come up with the goods of the look on the face, but that's another issue. 
But she just is so delighted to give that gift. Well, just take all of that and just multiply it by infinity. That's how God feels at getting heaven ready for you and you for heaven. He can't wait to show you your eternal dwelling place. He's been getting it ready all this time. He, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me and you'll be with me forever. And just the sense of expectancy the Father has to show it to you. Here it is, look at it, and feast your eyes on where you're going to spend eternity. So beautiful. He is delighted to get it ready for you and to get you ready for it. That's the pleasure that we have here. All right, well, that's, that's all just by way of introduction. God's heart, his delight, his joy, his love in giving us. Let's look at a partial inventory of our spiritual gifts. And we're just going over these things briefly. We don't have time to go through them carefully. But look at verses 4 through 10. It says, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So I want to talk about five of these spiritual blessings from here very quickly. The first is predestination. The second, adoption. The third is redemption or the forgiveness of sins. The fourth is wisdom. And the fifth is revelation. The last two being pretty closely related. So these five blessings. Let's look at the inventory of our wealth here. And let's start with this issue of predestination in verse 5. Now last week we spent a lot of time on sovereign election. How God before the foundation of the world chose his children by name. Now you may ask, aren't election and predestination the same thing? Well no they're not. They're separate things. They're closely related but they're separate In election, God identifies who will be saved. What are the individuals, what are their names that God will create and then save and call by name? That's election. In predestination, God sovereignly identifies aspects and details of that salvation, what it will entail. In other words, what we will get in our salvation. So the election is who and the predestination is what. What we're going to get. Where we're heading. Now what does this word predestined or predestination mean? Well it means to determine ahead of time what will happen. It means to decree something. To foreordain or to decide beforehand. As a king would. Now in the Greek the word literally means to set the boundary lines ahead of time. So there's a prefix uh, which means beforehand. And then there's this word that's related to our word for horizon or we could relate it to a boundary line. So it's basically God sets up the boundary lines for his elect ahead of time. Now in my mind's eye I picture the book of of Joshua. You remember how they conquered the promised land and the time came at the end of the book to divide the land up. And so this tribe gets this and that tribe gets that and the other tribe gets the other. And it seems to be determined by lot. 
So the casting of the lot comes out. And so the boundary lines are set by lot. So it's ta- you get this language of their allotted inheritance. Their allotted inheritance. Well, the implication of the book of Proverbs, a lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. That's a Bible verse. And so the Lord lays out the boundary lines for the inheritance. And that goes down to the individual person as well. How God sets up boundary lines for what you're going to get in Christ. And he does this before the foundation of the world. That's what this word is teaching. So you can think about what David said so beautifully in in Psalm 16 verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Every Christian should say that. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now you think about, like, what was it, the Oklahoma Sooners, and they stood up, you know, at a starting line, and a cannon went off, and they took off, and they were in a race for real estate. <laughs> and they're going to go try to find some place, you know, with a river, and maybe some green, you know, some things growing, some rich soil, and they want to get the best, you know, and so to the fastest goes the best, I guess. Or, and then there were some Sooners, I don't know what happened with those folks, Maybe crawled across the starting line a little early. Maybe the night before. I don't know. I have to look into that whole history. But anyway. So they went out there and they set their own boundary lines. Okay. But that's the way the image that people have. It's like to the fastest go the spoils. To the wisest, the strongest, the best, etc. That is not going on in salvation, friends. God by his sovereign grace goes way ahead of you and sets up your boundary lines. And then he works sovereignly to bring you there. That's what predestination is teaching. Now listen. We know there have been long debates over predestination. Long debates. There will be long debates this afternoon over predestination probably. (laughs) But I guess what I want to say to you is if you're a child of God, you accept the Bible as the word of God, you have to deal with predestination. We didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. I hope you don't. Please nod you know that I did not make up predestination. I'm just trying to describe what it is. Um, And so don't blame me. I've I've been here 17 years now, so I've earned the right with fear and trepidation to get up and preach on predestination. And you won't blame me like I thought of it in my basement and I'm so excited to roll it out today. (laughs) That's not the truth. We all have found it in Scripture and we're trying to understand what it means. And people struggle with it. They say, now how does that reconcile to, let's say, my free will, they would say. Or how does it rec- you know, connect with God's justice or his love or goodness? Or John 3, 16. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do we figure all that out? Doesn't it just make us robots, people say? Well, look, first of all, I don't believe for a moment that predestination makes any human being a robot. I mean, really, if God had wanted a bunch of robots, he could have made a bunch of robots. Like, God can do anything he wants. It's far more complicated than that. I mean, it's infinitely more complicated than that. You do, in fact, make choices. You do, in fact, love things and hate things and choose things. And those choices are real and they are significant. All I'm saying is that those attributes that you, you got them from God. And he does, in fact, love things and hate things and make choices and set determinations too. And ours come after his because he's the king. And there is a way to harmonize all of these things. It's, they're not contradictory, but it goes beyond. It's not contrary to your reason. It just goes beyond it, far beyond it. Now, the Bible mentions uh, what is predestined here. Ephesians 1 says, in love he predestined us to be adopted. So adoption as sons is predestined here. 
What's predestined elsewhere? Well, in Romans 8, 29, it uses the word in this way. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here in Ephesians, we have the fact of our adoption. And then in Romans 8, 29, the ultimate end of our adoption is predestined, that we're conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And that's really important to see those things. Also, it's used in the next verse in Romans 8 as a guarantee of our final salvation. A guarantee of it. In Romans 8.30, it says, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So predestination gives us a sense of complete certainty of our final salvation. So, that's predestination. Let's talk about adoption. Adoption, verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, Paul borrows an idea, a concept here that would have been foreign to the Jewish world that he was raised in, but it was very much well-known in the Roman world. And that is the idea of adoption, the adoption of, uh, of a son. So, in the Roman world, a wealthy nobleman could take a slave or a friend into his home and for whatever reason seemed good to him, uh, make him legally his son, make him his heir. You could do this. This was something that was known in the Roman world. Have any of you ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? It's one of my all-time favorite movies. So in that movie, Judah Ben-Hur was, uh, through various ways, became a, a galley slave. And in the course of events, he rescued a Roman nobleman, a general, from drowning. And uh, that man became a great man in Rome. And a lo- an affectionate relationship came between this older Roman man and Judah Ben-Hur. So much so that Quintus Arius, the older uh, Roman man, adopted Judah Ben-Hur and made him legally his son. So that's just a good display in, in a movie of this idea of adoption. And he gave him his signet ring as a seal and he became the legal heir of Quintus Arius. So that's the idea. It's a matter of legal status, of rights and privileges. Uh, the adopted son would inherit the wealthy man's property. He could sign documents in his name. He had access to the man himself. He was son in a legal standing. We Christians are the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. I mean, just ponder that. It's amazing. We are not, like Jesus, the only begotten son of God. So there's an infinite difference in that regard. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son, and we never will be that. But we are like him. And so we have the legal status of heirs with Christ of the universe. Remember I said you're wealthy? You're wealthy. You are going to inherit the new heaven and new earth. That's incredible. But not only is the the issue of the legal position, you know, Judah Ben-Hur, when he was adopted by Quintus Arius, didn't suddenly start looking like Quintus Arius. He didn't have the, the Roman nose, let's say, or the, you know, the, I mean, he was still Jewish. And so that external nature, the internal nature, all that, that was still the same. God's adoption goes beyond legal status. He then works through the spirit of adoption to conform us in nature to Christ 
As we said in Romans 8, so he becomes, we become conformed to the likeness of his son, that he's the firstborn among many brothers. And that's what's going on in you Christians right now, and has been for years, and will continue to the day you die. And that's what's going to happen in glorification. Instantaneously, you're going to be made like Jesus. Oh, how sweet is that? Behold, 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has given to you. That you should be called child of God. And that is what we are. Now, what we will be hasn't been made known, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So that's your sanctification, but someday, instantly, you're going to be made exactly morally like Jesus. And that's the finish line of your adoption. The finish line of it. Romans chapter 8, to some degree, says it's not all finished until you get the resurrection body. Romans 8.23 says we await uh, eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I know many of you have been through adoption proceedings. They are long, and they are elaborate, and they are expensive, aren't they? And it's like, when does this child, this little boy, this little girl, become legally our son? And we talk about the adoption being finalized. Well, our adoption will be finalized when we are in our resurrection bodies. We're in adoption proceedings now. We are secure. We're, it, we're, it's going to be finished. That's what predestination is all about. We're going to finish. But it's not going to be finalized till we're conformed to Christ in his resurrection body and his glory. And that's where it all goes. Now, how do I become a child of God? It could be that you are here as an unbeliever and you're on the outside, you're looking in, but you want to know, how do I become a child of God? Well, John 1.12 says very plainly how that happens. It says, as many as did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How awesome is that? So all you have to do is believe in the name of Jesus. That Jesus Christ crucified, shed his blood for your sins. And all you have to do is trust him. Just trust him right now where you're seated. Just say, I am a sinner. I need a savior. You died for me. You rose again. I believe that. Save me. And you'll be a child of God. And you receive the gift of sonship. You'll receive the Holy Spirit who will cry, Abba, Father, from within you. It can happen right now. And what will you get as a result of that? Well, you get many things. You get security because the slave, Romans 8.35, has no permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to it forever. You get complete security. And you get access. Later in Ephesians, it's going to talk about that. Through him, we, through, through him, Christ, we have access to the Father by one spirit. What does access mean? Well, a, a few weeks ago, I saw a, a tweet from Tim Keller on Twitter. I love this. I said, that's going right in my sermon. That is awesome. I love it. So here's the tweet. This is what it said. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water is a child. <laughs> we have that kind of access. Now, you want to do some training with that child at 3 in the morning and say, okay, first and last time here on this now, okay? <laughs> We're not doing this every night. But anyway, the point is made that access how delighted God is to see you as a son or daughter of God to come in to the throne room and, and say, come and sit with me and talk what's on your mind, what's on your heart. We have that kind of access. That's adoption. We also have in verse 7, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
In order for God to delight in us, he must deal with our wickedness. He must redeem us from our sins. And the price for that, as we've said, is infinitely expensive. A death had to be paid. The wages of sin is death. And it says plainly in Leviticus that the blood of of the creature is its life and I've given it to you to make atonement for sins. So it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so he cannot delight in us and not deal with our sins. Our sins are disgusting to him and repulsive to him. And so we must have redemption. Now the word redemption means a buying out of something like slavery. Think about Exodus and how God uses this again and again. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God redeemed them from a life of slavery and brought them into the promised land. And so we were slaves to sin and God has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus. He has forgiven our sins. And it's so complex and beautiful because he has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us and then declared us on that basis not guilty of all of our sins and treats us as though we didn't do it. He treats us as though we were as righteous as Jesus. We didn't just get by because we got a good lawyer. We're not going to get looked at askance by the angels in heaven and say, I know how you got here, okay? You had a wealthy friend. All right, wealthy relative who got you past judgment day and now you're here. It's not going to be like that. There's a delight. We are treated as though we really are righteous. It's just amazing to me. That's what redemption is all about through the blood of Jesus. And that's the gift that we have. We were redeemed from our sins by the blood of Christ. And it says in verse 8 also, he has given us wisdom and understanding in accordance he says with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding God actually transforms our minds so that our minds and hearts aren't darkened like they used to be they're not hardened like they used to be we understand things spiritually that we didn't understand before he's taken out the heart of stone and giving you the heart of flesh and now when you read the Bible it used to be a dark book now it makes sense to you increasingly so And so he's giving you a mind of understanding, of wisdom. In our old days, we were, Titus 3 says, foolish, deceived, and enslaved to all kinds of passions. But now we have been made, 2 Timothy 3.15, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We've been wise to flee the wrath to come. And we've been given a new heart and a new mind. Now, it's not done yet. If you look at verse 17 of the same chapter, which we'll get to, God willing, in future weeks... But Paul, Paul prays there that the, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. We've got more wisdom to get. We've got more learning to do. We've got more wisdom to gain. And so you hear preaching, you read books, you study the scriptures, you have more wisdom to get. But he's going to give it to you. He's going to give you wisdom and understanding. And the fifth blessing here is that of revelation. He's going to take the veil back from the mystery of the world, of the universe. And he's going to tell you what he's doing. He's going to show you the big picture here. And for me, Ephesians 1.10 has just exploded in my mind. This is what God is doing in the world. You say, what is he doing? We've got earthquakes in Nepal. We've got race riots in, in Baltimore. We've got... We've got all kinds of things in my life and in friends' lives, and we've got all kinds of suffering. What is he doing? Well, he's giving you revelation so that you can know what he's doing in the world. Look at verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his good pleasure, which he put in purpose in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So this word mystery, it's not like um, Sherlock Holmes, where you got to, you know, go around looking for clues. You know, look for clues. And if you put the clues together and you're really sharp and incisive and clever, you can solve the mystery. That's not it. Uh, mystery is something hidden in God's mind, part of his plan, that he now pulls back through the scripture and the Holy Spirit and says, this is what I'm doing. And he reveals it. The revelation is in scripture. And so what, in fact, is God doing? Well, he's bringing, it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What does that mean? Well, the New American Standard in verse 10 has it this way. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. So God has this plan and he is administering the plan. He's unfolding it. It's wise. It's detailed. We're going to talk about it, God willing, next week. It's big and covers everything. And he is unfolding it in every generation, step by step, day after day, year after year, with a view to the end of all time when all of these things will be consummated and completed. He's unfolding, verse 10, this plan suitable for the fullness of time. And what is it? He's bringing together all things that were fragmented and blown apart through wickedness and sin together under one head, Christ. And so therefore, the new heaven and new earth will be a place of perfect, pervasive, deep harmony and unity between everything that God has made and God himself. Perfectly one in Christ. That's what he's doing. That's how big all this is. So that includes the race issue in Baltimore. That includes the earthquake in Nepal. That includes all the suffering. We see the universe like a fragmentation grenade just blown apart by sin. We see people blown apart by sin. We see it in individual relationships. We see it in husband-wife relationships, marriages. We see it in parent-child relationships with tyranny by the parents or rebellion by the children. We see it in terms of one group, ethnic group to the other. We just see it everywhere, this fragmentation. The only answer is the gospel of Christ. Amen? And it's not just the only answer. It's going to work. It's suitable for the fullness of time. And it's going to work. And so you can see everything that's happening. There'll come a time when there will be no more earthquakes. There'll be no more tidal waves. No more floods. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. No more murders. No more injustice. Those days will be over forever. Well, God's ultimate purpose in all this, never tire of saying it, is worship. And so that's my first application here. Let's just worship God in all of this. We need to worship him. We need to just say thank you to God. Go back to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him more than you do. Just take Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 and say, praise God, praise God, praise God. Look at all this. Praise God for election. Praise God for your love. Praise God, someday I'm going to be holy and blameless in your sight. Praise God that you've predestined me for all this and nothing can stop it. Praise God that you poured out your son, his blood for me, that I might have forgiveness of sins. Praise God for these blessings. Just praise him. Go over your inventory. Say, boy, I'm rich. I'm just a rich man. I'm a rich woman. 
Secondly, I just, I've already said it, but if you came in this place on the outside looking in, I hope that you're not still that way. I hope that 10 minutes ago you followed what I urged you to do and you called on Christ. So you don't leave here under the wrath of God. Instead, you leave here an adopted son or daughter of God. And for us as believers, let's, let's realize, like Ron prayed earlier, all these unreached people groups, and then there are others that have heard the gospel several times, many times, or they just haven't come to Christ yet. We have a responsibility and it's a joyful responsibility. God loves a cheerful giver. Let's cheerfully go out and give and share the gospel with people. Say, boy, I have some good news for you. I mean, start tomorrow. Let's say workplace evangelism. You say, well, how was your weekend? You know, the, your coworker would say it was terrible. Terrible. Why? It was dreary. It was ugly and awful and rainy and cold. Say, I had a great weekend. Really? What made it great? I just found out how rich I am. It's like, tell me more. I'm interested, very interested. It's like, well, I can, I can tell you all about the wealth I have. I mean, just have that conversation. See where it leads. Concerning adoption, I, I just would urge you and commend to you to consider, it may be that God is leading some of you who have never considered adopting before to adopt a child. Many of you have already reached that point. Those of you that want to ask questions, find out from those that are further along in the process. The elders know who they are. And just say, you know, how do I get involved? I mean, I, God may be leading us to adopt a child. How do we do that? And for those of you that are in the process of it, let's, let's work together. Let's pray for one another. That's a long, a costly process. And let's encourage those that have that calling. This is a great, great passage to talk about adoption because that adoption can picture, you know, our eternal adoption. And let's stop complaining, amen? Okay, let's just stop complaining and moaning and groaning. I know things are hard sometimes. But I never tire of John Newton's illustration about the guy who's about to go into the city to receive a vast inheritance. And uh, John Newton lived in the 18th century, wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, on the way, this heir, this soon-to-be-incredibly-wealthy man, his carriage broke. And it's raining. And he had to get out and walk the last two miles in the rain and the mud. And the whole time he's like, my carriage is broken and it's muddy and raining. And, I'm all, and it's like, what is wrong with you? Well, that's how we look to heaven when we go to heaven muttering and complaining. Don't do that. Say, I'm rich. God loves me. God has given me everything I need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. So let's praise him and thank him. And let's imitate God's cheerful generosity. Amen. Let's be cheerful, cheerful givers. God loves a cheerful giver. Let's be like that little girl who's knitting it and just say, I can't wait to give this to somebody. I just want to give this. There's so many of you in this congregation that have taught me cheerful giving. I would say I barely knew it before I came here. I'm not saying people hadn't been cheerful and generous to me before, but I'm just telling you, there are some that have been so generous to me and my family since we've been here that you have taught us how to give cheerfully. So let us imitate that. Let's be cheerful givers. And fifth, let's not stumble over predestination. Let's delight in it. Find security in it. Don't argue over it. If this afternoon you find, two of you find yourself in an argument about predestination, stop. <laughs> just go back and read the verse and just stop and just say, praise God that in love you predestined us to be adopted as sons. And leave it at that. Because that's what the text said. Just leave it there. All right? And then in good time. And look forward finally, when you read, when you go to CNN or you go to some of the other things, you see earthquakes, you see race riots, you see different things. Yearn for verse 10, Ephesians 1.10. Oh God, make all things one in Christ. Bring us together and make us one. Close with me in prayer. 
Father, it has been so good to go over the inventory list of how rich we are in Christ. Thank you that you're so cheerfully willing to give this to us. Thank you for everything you've done in Jesus. Now I pray that you would take this word and seal it to our hearts deeply. Help us to understand it. Help us to, to take it to heart and to embrace it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.